Good morning everybody, uh, welcome to um, our HR forum today on tribunals and tri tribulations. Um, I think we're, sort of, we're in quite an interesting point in terms of tribunal litigation. Uh, the government is taking lots of steps to try and uh, cut red tape in employment law supposedly um, and to make it harder for employees to bring uh, tribunal claims. I have to say the jury's out on how effective those steps are going to be, whether they're really just tinkering or whether it's going to make any real difference. Um, for the last year we got statistics, there was a drop in the number of tribunal claims, um, about years 2011-2012, there was a 15% drop, which is obviously good news from an employer's perspective. That meant, however, there were still 186,000 claims. Uh, so tribunal litigation is going to be with us uh, for a while yet, I think. Um, and by way of a scary statistic, the maximum award in that year, 2011-2012, was for four million four hundred forty-five thousand pounds uh, and twenty-three pounds. Let's not forget the twenty-three for a race discrimination claim. Um, so this morning, I'm going to be talking with my fellow partner, David Williams, um, through the tribunal litigation process, how the process works at each stage, what tactics can you use to maximise your advantage. Um, David's going to talk about some settlement strategies you can use if you want to try and get rid of the case. Uh, I'm going to talk quickly about um, costs in tribunal claims and some changes in the pipeline. And then we'll then take a quick break for coffee uh, and then look at a, a case study. So starting off with the uh, litigation process, I put up on the slide how the, how the process typically works. Um, There'll usually be some stuff to do before the claim is, is coming. You'll you'll know the claim is on the way quite often. Uh, you'll get a claim itself. You have to put in a defence. You'll then get some directions, um, which is where the tribunal tells you what you have to do uh, and by when in preparation for the hearing. Then disclosure of documents, exchange of witness statements, final preparation for the hearing, which might be things like skeleton arguments, list of issues, and then the hearing itself. And that process can take anything from three months to 12 months from, from when the claim is first issued um, until you get to a hearing. Three months to, to, to uh, more than 12 months. I had a case a couple of years ago, an equal pay case, where we had to, I think, wait about 18 months to get a hearing. So at the stage where litigation is on the cards, um, in a sense, this is where the process starts when you're dealing with a sort of disciplinary or grievance process. Um, as you'll know, getting the process... Um, is a, is a key part of defending the claim, particularly if you're dealing with a, a disciplinary dismissal situation. Having a, a proper reason is only, only half the story. You need to follow a, a fair process before dismissal. Um, and if you're dealing with a dismissal or disciplinary or grievance situation, I think the key thing to do is, is to make sure you're thorough um, and you, you don't, you're not seen to, to whitewash the situation um, and you have some kind of nuance to, to your findings. So, for example, I dealt with a case uh, last year, a claim brought by a trade union official, and there were various allegations against him, and some of the evidence w was quite balanced. Um, but in relation to every allegation um, that was made against him, the employer said the, tribunal, uh, the, the trade union rep was definitely guilty of what he was accused of. And when that came to tribunal, that didn't do the trade union rep, didn't do the employer any favours whatsoever, um, because it just looked like... Um, the employer had, had damned him from the outset. So some nuance can be quite, quite helpful um, when you're dealing with a uh, grievance or a disciplinary process. Um, you also obviously avoid need to sending unhelpful emails because those will be disclosable, as we'll talk about in a moment. And it may be appropriate, just picking up on the last point, to concede um, some points. 
um, very recent case, Ashton Y against Spirit Pub Company, concerned an individual who was, con- who was called to an emergency meeting. Um, he didn't turn up, uh, and he was disciplined for not turning up. And it transpired the reason he didn't turn up was because he was on leave that day. Um, when this was looked at further by the employer, the employer said, OK, we accept actually you were on leave, so we shouldn't have taken any action, and they offered to take some other steps to, to correct the wrong. Despite that, he resigned and brought a constructive dismissal claim, and the case went to the EAT, and the EAT said this was quite close to being a repudiatory breach of contract, which would have enabled you to bring a constructive dismissal claim, but effectively the employer turned the situation around by admitting that it had done something wrong, trying to take some steps to correct that. So the moral of the story is actually if you are banged to rights, um, you, you're quite often better off admitting it uh, and taking steps to address it because you can save what would have been a, a, a fairly damaging situation. The other thing you can get um, at the start of the process, at an early stage of the process, is a subject access request. It's quite often done as a nuisance um, tactic by employees. Um, where they say, give us all emails um, that mention me from the past three years. Um, Something like that. If you do get a subject access request, um, don't assume you have to respond in full. Don't assume you could ignore it entirely. Um, The truth is probably somewhere between the two. So there may be scope to to push back if the request is unreasonably wide. Um, There's a Court of Appeal case called Durant and the FSA, which says... um, Subject access request only applies to emails which are biographical in nature or have the individual as their subject. If you haven't had the £10 fee, you can, you can push back. That might sound a little bit petty, but it gives you a little bit more time to respond to the request. Uh, and you get 40 days from when you have a, a valid request to comply. You don't have to disclose privileged documents, and you may not have to disclose documents that reveal confidential information about a, a third party unless that third party consents or it's reasonable to disclose without the consent. Um, uh, And why is all that relevant? Well, two reasons. One, because it can be a huge undertaking to comply with a subject access request. Uh, And secondly, because you may end up having to disclose emails which don't cast you in a very good light. And if there is a way in which you can postpone that to allow more time to to settle a case, um, then it's often a good thing to do that. And a good tactic when you get a subject access request is um, it's, if you can disclose something relatively easily, which isn't going to be too damaging, like the employee's personnel file, um, but not everything, then that's going to put you in a much stronger position if the employee brings a complaint to the information commissioner. The first sort of formal stage of, of litigation is the defence. It's the basic statement of the employer's position. You get 28 days from when the claim is filed to put in your defence. If you don't put in your defence within that time and the, and the tribunal hasn't given you extra time within that 28-day period, that'll be it. That, that's, that's game over. You won't be able to take any further part in proceeding. So you need to get your defence in. The first question you need to ask yourself when you're preparing your defence is what do you actually need to prove? You're not just telling a story about what happened. You actually need to show in the defence why you as an employer acted lawfully. So, for example, in an unfair dismissal claim, you need to show that you had a fair reason for dismissal and that you followed a fair process. One of the questions you, you often get asked, um, we often get asked in, in connection with preparing defence, is how much detail should you go into? Um, if in doubt, err on the side of brevity is, is, the, is the short point. Um, you won't know all the facts probably at this stage of proceedings. Even if you think you know everything at this stage of the proceedings, it's pretty common for something else to come out during the course of the process. 
Uh, and remember that the defence is, um, is, is a statement of your case. It's not evidence, it's not the complete story, and the tribunal doesn't want chapter and verse. So in terms of getting a defence that, that works for you, you want something that's simple, that's concise, that covers all the necessary legal bases, something that's self-contained and logical, so someone can just pick it up and see, OK, this is the employer's position, I understand that. This is what they did and why they did it and why it was lawful. And if the tribunal can pick it up or if the other side can pick it up and read it and understand your position without having to ask too many more questions, that's going to be a lot more persuasive than something that's very complicated that they're going to have to dig into in a lot more detail. Uh, And remember that the defence is the first document that the tribunal is going to see about your case and it's going to be the first document often that the other side, the claimant, will see setting out your position formally. So it is an important document. The other thing to think about when you're preparing the defence is are there any knockout points you've got that will just make the claim go away? Was the claim brought out of time? Uh, Most employment tribunal claims have to be brought within three months of the act that the employee is complaining about. Was the claimant actually working in the UK at the time of the dismissal? Uh, I dealt with a case uh, last year where the employee had been recruited in London but at the time of the dismissal had been working in Dubai for a few months um, and we were able to argue before the tribunal um, that he no longer had a sufficiently strong connection to UK employment law um, and therefore he couldn't bring an unfair dismissal claim and we managed to get the claim struck out. Was the individual actually an employee? Um, or was he in reality a consultant or a worker? Because, as you know, most employment rights attach to employees. Do they have sufficient service to bring a claim? As you know, the uh, time period for bringing unfair dismissal claims has recently gone up from one year to two years. Or does the claim uh, simply have no reasonable prospects of success? What else can you do if the claim looks um, a bit dodgy, a bit of a try-on? Um, a couple of common tactics, a request for further information um, or an application for a preliminary hearing. So you can use a request for further information to highlight weaknesses in the claimant's claim or, or simply because you want to get them to do some more work and, and spend some legal fees if they've got, um, if they've got lawyers on board and just to let them know they're not going to have it their own, all their own way when they bring a claim. When should you use them, a further information request? Well, you might do it because the employee's claim is just a bit vague. He just says, I've been bullied, but hasn't given any de- details. Or you might, uh, you might use it um, if there's a gateway issue which looks particularly, particularly weak. So, for example, if the employee said disability discrimination, but actually you look at their records and they've hardly had any absences, that might suggest that they haven't, um, haven't got much of a case to argue they've got a disability. What sort of questions are you going to ask? Well, I think that depends on why you're asking, making the further information request. Are you trying to put the employee to some work and to some expense? Uh, in that case, you might want to, to ask quite a lot of questions. What happened when? Who was present? Etc. Etc. Or are you using this because the employee's got a particularly weak um, part to his claim, which you which you want to to potentially get struck out or get the employee to back away from, and you might want to go make an application to the tribunal. Uh, in that situation it's better to actually have two or three quite focused questions because it's then much harder for the employee to justify not answering them. It'll be much easier to persuade a tribunal to give you an order that the employee has to answer them. And what happens if the employee refuses to answer the questions? Well, um, the next logical step would be to write to the tribunal and say, can we have an unless order? Um, requiring the employee to answer the questions within, say, 14 days, failing which their claims get struck out. Um, or uh, you might want to apply for a preliminary hearing and to determine whether a particular part of the employee's claim can succeed. Um, there is one situation where you would want to be cautious about making further information requests, and that is where the employee's claim is vague, um, but actually you think underlying it there is a meaningful claim. So if the employee said, 
I've been bullied, hasn't put in a lot of detail, but you think actually there's probably some truth in that. It's not necessarily a good idea to ask them to give you further information because all you're doing then is giving them an opportunity to, to restate their case in more, more detail. And if you are going for a preliminary hearing, when, when are you going to think about, about doing that? Well, as I say, it's for appropriate for discrete um, knockout points such as the employee doesn't have sufficient service to bring the claim or for gateway issues as to whether the um, employee's got a disability or if they've failed to comply with an order. As a general rule, you shouldn't be asking for a preliminary hearing unless you think you unless you're reasonably confident you're actually going to succeed in it um, both because there is time and cost involved in going to a preliminary hearing and tactically it's not a good thing um, to make an application which you use because it will just give the employee more confidence in their position um, from the tribunal's perspective they are generally only inclined to um, agree to preliminary hearings if they can see it is a discrete issue and they think it's going to save some time compared to dealing with the case as a whole. So if a preliminary issue is going to take three days and the case as a whole is likely to take four days, you're probably not going to get the tribunal to give you a preliminary hearing. Uh, something else which you might have to deal with at a relatively early stage in the litigation is a discrimination questionnaire. Um, as I mentioned on the slide, there is some talk about removing discrimination questionnaires. Um, the government along with many other consultations, has consulted about, about removing discrimination questionnaires. The rationale being that they don't achieve a great deal and they take um, a, num a lot of hours to complete. The government reckons businesses complete about 10,000 discrimination questionnaires every year and they take, they take hours to complete. Um, and then, in my experience, once they've been completed, they just get filed and forgotten about. Um, so I think that would be quite a sensible thing. For the moment, um, we've still got to live with them. Uh, an employee can submit them before the um, claim form or within 28 days of issuing the claim form. Um, it's most common for them to be sent at the same time as the claim form, in my experience. Um, you get eight weeks to reply. You don't actually have to reply, but if you don't, the tribunal is going to draw an adverse inference. Uh, it's usually best to deal with the ETU one first, if you can, because that's the more important document. Uh, you need to make sure your response to the discrimination questionnaire is consistent with the ETU one but that apart, it's generally better to, to err on the side of, side of brevity. And really the key thing is not to say anything too damaging, not appear too evasive, but not to say anything too damaging. Because as I say, if your response is relatively bland and doesn't cause you any damage, it's probably actually going to be forgotten about after you've submitted it. The next stage in the litigation process uh, <coughs> is usually disclosure, where each party sends each other copies of relevant documents. Exactly how far you have to search will depend on what order you get from the tribunal, um, but you'll usually have to undertake a reasonable search. Um, that m will usually include disclosing damaging documents and documents with sensitive confidential information in, if they're relevant. Um, unless you can say that the documents are legally privileged, i.e. involve advice to your external lawyer, or without prejudice um, correspondence. If documents contain sensitive information that's not relevant, you may be able to redact it. Uh, the duty of disclosure is an ongoing one, so for example, if you've got, if you've got an appeal that's ongoing um, after the claim has been issued, documents in relation to that will need to be disclosed. I guess the most important point with disclosure is you shouldn't create an unhelpful paper trail in, in the first place. Um, I, I've dealt with cases where I've had to disclose emails where the manager described um, the employee who was bringing the claim as a psycho, which was not terribly helpful. Um, I had dealt with another case last year where the employee was being described as unmanageable. This was an internal email between two HR people. The employee was described as unmanageable 
Um, and it went on to say, can you speak to Chris Middleton to find out how we can get rid of him? Um, so again, that was not a terribly helpful email. Um, so uh, it's, it's an old point, but it is an important point, actually, be, to be very careful about the paper trail that you create. Uh, is there any way in which you can actually use the disclosure process to your advantage? Well, potentially, yes. Um, uh, people don't want to invest the time, but the earlier you can look at the documents and pull together relevant documents, in a case, the better, because you know what you're going to be facing with. Um, if you've got documents that actually strongly support your case um, or undermine the claimant's case, it can sometimes be helpful to, to disclose them, to send them over to the claimant ahead of the formal deadline for disclosure. Um, <coughs> so another example, I dealt with a case a few years ago where an employee um, was injured abroad in a, a former Soviet republic, um, and she was had to stay out there because of her injury, had to stay in this country for um, a few days and brought a claim saying that the, the company had, had skimped on flying her back to the UK and said that she was constructively dismissed because of that. Um, and we had a very helpful document of about 50 pages, which was um, a detailed record of all the conversations um, which our client had had with the external medical um, company. Um, and the, this document was produced by the medical company um, and it very strongly substantiated our position that actually the medical advice was not to repatriate the employee any sooner and that everything possible was being done to repatriate her. So we disclosed that at, at an early stage and that um, that was a, was a big help in undermining the employee's position and undermining her confidence in her case. So that's certainly something that's worth thinking about. And if you do look at the documents and you find you've got some unhelpful documents, some unhelpful emails, you know, have a think about whether there's some other documents out there that provide some, some context to, to a particular comment that mitigate the effect of a comment. Or is there a way in which later down the line you're going to be able to explain the comments away in an email, in a witness statement, um, for example. Conversely, the duty on disclosure is, is two-way. The claimant has to provide documents to you. And although most of the documents go from employer to employee, there is nothing to stop you pushing the employee to produce documents and saying, well, if this happened, where's your evidence and putting some pressure on the employee. And I guess it's just worth saying, if you don't carry out disclosure properly and the tribunal finds out about it, they're going to take an extremely dim view of your case. Because you, you know, we do sometimes have conversations with employers where they say, do we have to disclose this? We don't want to disclose this. Well, chances are, if you don't want to disclose it, it's probably irrelevant. There's a, there's a reason why you don't want to disclose it. Um, and as I say, if the tribunal finds out about it at a later date, which quite often it will, <coughs> um, it's going to do you no favours whatsoever. So you're better off actually just, just facing up to, to the reality of the documents you've got. Once both parties have done disclosure, they'll put together a, a bundle um, of the documents which will go before the tribunal, and you then get onto witness statements, which are typically the most important part of the case. Generally speaking, who the tribunal believes and sympathises with will be um, who the tribunal finds for at the end of the day. Again, when you're preparing your witness statements, uh, you need to think about actually what do we need to prove here. You're not just telling a nice story. You need to prove um, certain legal elements. You need to prove, again, you had a fair reason for dismissal or that you acted the way you did, not because of the claimant's race or gender, but for some other reason. And you need to think about who's going to say what, um, who's going to cover which part of, of the story. Witness statements do need to go into quite a lot of detail, and more detail than the claim form, a lot more detail than the claim form, because this, is, in a sense, is your sort of final shot of getting all of your story um, down on paper. Um, but not extraneous detail. You are writing a, a legal document, ultimately, not a, not a novel. 
Um, one of the things you often have to think about in drafting witness statements is, is how do we deal with weaknesses in our case. Um, if there are obvious weaknesses, it's a good idea to try and head them off in the witness statement and say, say things like, you know, I recognise that the claimant has alleged X, Y and Z, the reason this happened is such and such. Um, if they are more minor weaknesses, you may be better not to deal with them in the witness statement, but be prepared to deal, be cross-examined on them. Um, I've said what's the relationship between witness statements and documents. Documents are viewed by tribunals generally as being the most reliable form of evidence because documents don't lie, generally speaking. Um, but documents don't tell the whole story. So what you're looking for your witness statement to do is, is to add some colour and some narrative um, and, if necessary, put a more positive spin on particular documents. And what are the keys to a successful witness statement? And as I say, this is the single most important part of the case. And if you're going to spend time and money on any one part of the case, I would say the witness statement. Well, again, you want something that's logical and simple and focused on what it needs to prove. And something that um, someone could pick up and read and understand the, the story, that part of the story, without really having to look at, at too much else. Because, again, if you can do all the thinking for the tribunal... Um, so they don't have to think, well, hang on, how does that work, or what about this? If you can do all that thinking for the tribunal, they're much less likely to second-guess what you put in your, your witness statement if you make something seem very simple and very logical. Um, but again, remembering actually you are trying to prove certain legal points. You're not just telling a nice story. Um, thinking about as well, what is the claimant going to try and say from, from his, his perspective and trying to anticipate what the claimant's going to say and, and, and heading that off um, at the pass and thinking, okay, we want to do two things. We want to seem like the good guy so that the tribunal will sympathise with us and want to find in our favour, and we want to show that we've satisfied all the legal requirements, so we want to make it nice and easy for the tribunal to find in our favour. <coughs> After the witness statements, you usually have the hearing fairly quickly. Just make sure your witnesses know what to expect at the hearing, how does the process work, um, how many people there are in the tribunal, um, uh, do they know what happens, who's going to ask them questions, where they're going to sit, sort of mundane details like that. Um, make sure witnesses are familiar with their witness statement. The documents it refers to in the tribunal bundle you put together. It's one thing working in a witness statement with a friendly lawyer. It, it's quite different being cross-examined by an unfriendly lawyer. Uh, uh, and cross-examination is the thing that, that obviously concerns, that concerns witnesses the most. Uh, I speak from the perspective of having seen... Um, I was think a, a few hundred witnesses being cross-examined, never having been cross-examined myself. In my experience, when witnesses do badly in cross-examination, it's either because they're not comfortable with the material they're being cross-examined on, because they don't really believe in what they're saying, they're defending someone else's decision they don't believe, or because they're not sufficiently familiar with it, or because they simply don't want to be there. The answer to that is to make sure that you pick your witnesses quite carefully, that they are very familiar with what they're going to get cross-examined on, and that they remember why they're there. It's worth reminding your witnesses, you're not here just to survive the experience, you're here because this person has brought a claim, they put us to a lot of time and money and work, uh, and we're here to make sure the tribunal sees our side of the story rather than, rather than his side of the story. We can't tell a witness when we're preparing for a hearing, we can't say this is how you should answer a particular question, but we can tell the witness what sort of questions they're going to get and to say, you know, think about how you're going to answer those types of questions. And uh, we can tell the witness what sort of general approach to take to questions. So a witness should keep their answers concise, but equally, if there is a caveat, then they should explain that. So they can say not just yes, but yes, but you, there is also this, um, this mitigating factor.
The hearing itself can last anything from a day to several weeks. Most commonly you'll get the judgment at a later date, not at the hearing itself, a few weeks later. And if you don't like uh, the outcome, sometimes it may be possible to appeal. It's relatively difficult, but you then get six weeks to appeal uh, the outcome. Um, I'm going to hand over now to David, who's just going to talk about some of the things you can do to, to settle cases before they get to that stage. Um, thanks, Chris. <coughs> now going to move on from looking at how to prepare and fight a case to looking at some of the considerations for settling it. Um, and the statistics show that for a typical unfair dismissal claim, two-thirds of those claims are settled by the parties. I think 23% are withdrawn, and actually 42% um, are settled via ACAS, which is um, quite interesting. Only 8% of unfair dismissal claims are actually ultimately successful in the hearing. In looking at settlement, I'm going to address three considerations. The first one is some factors that will drive the parties towards settlement, some considerations to bear in mind. The second point I'm going to deal with is some practical considerations before moving um, on to look at timing. Um, and in terms of settlement, I think timing is everything. So let's start off with some considerations in, in preparing your settlement strategy. And the first point to bear in mind is that the settlement strategy will very much depend on the case. It depends on the facts, it depends on the type of case, it depends on the strength of argument. So how do you weigh all that up? Well, you need to look at certain considerations. The first consideration I always look at is to ask, what's the claimant like? What's he like as a person? What drives him? What motivates him? What does he want to achieve? Does he, is he greedy? Does he want revenge? Or does he want justice? Justice can be the, the worst personality type. Um, so other considerations um, to look at are reputation, or in a wider context to look at what will this case mean in a larger business context? Can the case damage your business? Is it the type of the case, for example, that could come on the front page of the mail? If it is, you might want to think about settling it. The next thing to think about is the cost, the cost of pursuing it, and I'm going to come on to that and look at how the cost can escalate at different stages so you can take this into account in devising your settlement strategy. The next point, of course, is the strength of your claim. And it's not so easy just to say, oh, it's 40% chance of success or 60% chance of success. Often there are a variety of factors. There's different elements of the claim, and you need to look at the witnesses and how strong they are, as Chris has mentioned, and also the underlying evidence. Does it help you? Does it assist you? And if it does or it doesn't. The other thing is, is particularly what are the witnesses like? How are they going to bear up? Are they going to say anything untoward? Um, I remember fighting one case on behalf of a bank and they had a very controversial policy where if staff haven't met, hadn't met their sales targets they had to come in after work and keep working and phoning clients until they had met their targets and HR didn't like that and a case was brought so HR made the case come to, before the court and they wouldn't settle it and one of the witnesses was the head of sales who had devised this policy and he said something to me which really frightened me before the hearing. I was a very, very junior lawyer at the time. He said, I love a battle of words. And because I feel so strongly about this, I've brought all the other members of the sales team. And he was systematically taken apart, not by the other side, but by the tribunal chairman. So think about what your witnesses are like. How do they come across? What sort of people are they? The next thing is look at the potential damages. If it's an unfair dismissal case, it's potential cap, but realistically, what would they get? What would they get with mitigation in the real world? Is it seven or nine months' pay? And weigh that up against other money they've received by way of mitigation 
or in, in terms of finding another job. Of course, if it's a discrimination came, claim, the, the damages can be unlimited. So what are the other factors? Will fighting the case set an unhelpful precedent if you lose? For example, other claims could be bought, brought on the back of it. Would there be a, a useful precedent if you settle? Would that encourage other people to bring spurious claims? And how would that impact on the business? The next one is a point of principle, always something that really scares me, when people want to fight claims on a point of principle. And I think that's fine, as long as you're going to win. Um, the one thing I would say is people who want to fight on a point of principle tend to be the people who are directly involved in the discrimination complaint. They want to clear their name, they want to vindicate themselves, and they want to drive the matter forward because of that. And it's also often useful to try and take them out of the picture and look at the whole thing commercially without this personal interference in assessing the pros and cons. And the final time is the, the final consideration on the slide is the management time. Something that's often overlooked. How much HR time will it take to help prepare the case and go through the disclosure process and prepare the witnesses and for the witnesses to attend the hearing? And how much damage could that do to the business? There's a considerable time and cost investment involved. The next thing I want to move on to is just a few practical um, considerations. Um, I suppose the first practical consideration is, if you are going to settle, what is, what is the pathway? How should you go about it? My personal preference, particularly where the claimant is represented, is to talk directly to the representative. I personally prefer to miss out the middle, the middle person. It means there's no mixed messages and we can get to the, the, chase, the cut and the chase of the matter very quickly. Um, often, however, particularly where the individual is not represented, it's useful to go through ACAS, and 42% of cases are settled via ACAS. My experience is the, the, the quality of ACAS can vary, particularly where they don't have the time to, um, the, the time to get involved in the particular matter. So what else can you do? Well, you can go through judicial mediation. This is a court-appointed tribunal chairman who is there to help you mediate the case. And I found that very useful, particularly where, for example, I, I feel that the other side isn't represented by someone who is perhaps of high quality or has an unreasonable view of the, the merits of the claim, or perhaps they're uh, a claimant in person, and it's useful for them to listen to a tribunal chairman about the pros and cons of their own claim. The one thing I would say about mediation is, you know, you could spend 12 hours and get nowhere, but where I have found it very useful is to take people down from unrealistic claims of 600,000 down to a much more reasonable ballpark and maybe settle the case or maybe then deal with other matters and then bring them back to the table and see if we can settle at a slightly later stage. So what are the other practical considerations? Well, the first thing you need to think about is how is it going to be documented? And there's two, two, two pathways there. Firstly, it could be a compromise agreement uh, which allows you to adjust the terms and do with restrictive covenants and variety of matters, or a COP3, which is generally only designed to deal with the claim that has been issued, although of course has the advantage of not requiring the individual book to be legally represented. Other practical considerations are um, things that you can take into account that don't really cost any money. For example, giving the individual a reference, which can be very valuable, dealing potentially with restrictive covenants, and also perhaps agreeing a reason for the dismissal. Um, and that can be relevant, for example, if the individual has insurance uh, in the situation where they've been made redundant. Although, only agree the reason if it is the genuine reason, because if it's not, then that could be uh, uh, insurance fraud. The other thing to bear in mind is it's not just 
how you settle it, it's kind of presenting it. And in presenting it, you want to put a little bit of pressure on. You want to put your best foot forward, but also you want to put it in a way, you know, you want to encourage them to do it. You want to put a deadline on accepting it. And you want to, if you can, set out some consequences or some cost consequences that could arise if they pursue their claim. And that's something that Chris will come on to uh, in a few moments. The final thing I'm going to talk about is timing. Um, and as I mentioned a few moments ago, I think timing is everything. And Chris has gone through the various stages of the process. One of the points to bear in mind is that as you go through each stage, the costs and the management time increase. And the question there, in looking at your, your settlement strategy, is when should you settle and how should you settle on that timeline? Because, of course, a good settlement is paying the least amount of money and the least amount of legal fees that you can possibly get away with. So let's break this down into stages. Well, I suppose the first stage is you've got the pre-action stage. It's the stage where you can position yourself, try and avoid the claim, maybe offer a settlement before something is issued in order to save all the money down the line. And the one thing to bear in mind there is that the government is proposing this pre-claim conciliation whereby the parties will be obliged to conciliate for one month via ACAS before the claim is issued. And the consequence of that is it's proposed that the timelines for bringing claims will be pushed out by a month. So, for example, in an unfair dismissal claim, the, um, the, the, the timescale will be three months uh, from the date of dismissal. If you can't deal with the claim then, of course, the claim is going to be issued and typically you will have um, uh, 28 days in an unfair dismissal claim to, to, to set out the defence. Now, if the claim involves something to do with reputation, you might want to try and settle it then. You might want to say, look, it's got some salacious information in this claim. We, we think it might be useful just to get together and, and, and try and uh, deal with it at that stage. But more generally, most people put in a robust defence, either something that's brief or more detailed, depending on the nature of the case and the strategy that you have in mind. Once the defence is in, the key is to position yourself as quickly as possible to make a settlement if that's what you want to do. So generally you might want to work right to the other side and stress the merits, the positives for your case and the weaknesses for their case. And tactically, there might be some more specific things that you can do. As Chris has mentioned, you might be able to deal with a schedule of loss and mitigation and press those points or further and better particulars. Or there may be some sort of strikeout application that you can make to position yourself and put as much pressure on as possible in order to make a claim. But the key here, of course, is, is trying to make an offer, trying to settle it for the least amount of money as quickly as possible before the stages, the, the, the costs escalate. But also the point to bear in mind is what's going through the claimant's mind? How much are they incurring in terms of fees? How much are they incurring in terms of resources? What are their risks in terms of mitigation? Are they being bled and dry by the mere fact that the claim is going on without any uh, offer being made? And to bear that in mind in making your, your settlement offer. Um, on that note, I'm going to hand back to Chris, who's going to deal with one of the ways of putting pressure on people, which is um, to, to threaten costs. So as David said, there are sort of various ways in which you can um, try and put some pressure on, on the claimant. Uh, one particular tactic which can be quite effective is um, giving the claimant a, a cost warning. So basically saying to the claimant, 
look, we don't think there's anything in this case. If you go ahead with it to tribunal, and as we fully expect we win, we're going to come after you for our, our costs incurred as a, as a result. Or maybe saying, we're going to offer to pay you £5,000. If you go to tribunal and get less than that, or if you settle for, for that at a later date, we're going to come after you for our, our wasted costs. And that can be quite effective, um, quite an effective way of, of achieving settlement because a claimant can quite often see um, the tribunal process as quite risk-free and cost-free, if they, particularly if they're doing it themselves or they've got insurance backing or trade union backing because at, at the moment it doesn't cost anything to issue a claim um, and if they're not paying for legal representation themselves, there's no sort of particular cost to them to just seeing the, the process um, through. But if actually if they know that, well, actually I might have to pay the company's costs if this, if this doesn't go the right way, it becomes a much more difficult judgment call um, for the claimant. So worth thinking about. What I would say is use them sparingly. Um, I have seen cases where an employer has issued um, three or four cost warnings both before the claim was issued and after the, the, the claim was issued and that did that employer no favours whatsoever because actually the tribunal just thought that the employer was bullying the employee um, and was disinclined to order any costs against um, the employee and actually felt less favourably towards the employer um, in, in the substantive issues as well. So use them sparingly um, and it is best if you can put together rational arguments as to why you think you should get your costs back, as to why the claimant hasn't got any, any basis for proceeding with their claim. Not just saying, we're going to come after you for every penny you've got if you go ahead with this, but actually saying, this is your case, this is why there's no basis to it, this is why the offer we've made you is more than generous and you're not going to get anything. The only purpose of going ahead with this is to cause us additional costs, and if that's what you do, then we'll have no option but, but to seek recovery of our, of our costs. Um, so it is worth thinking about. Putting in a cost warning can also be helpful if you do actually want to apply for costs at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the process. Um, a tribunal will be more sympathetic to a cost application if earlier on in the process you have written uh, um, a well-reasoned cost warning letter to the, the employee letting them know that they are at risk for your costs if things go ahead. As you, as you know, I'm sure you don't automatically get costs if you win in the tribunal. You only get costs if the other party's acted vexatiously, abusively, disruptively, unreasonably, or if the proceedings have been uh, misconceived. Um, so, in effect, the, the employee's got to have acted in a sort of a particularly unreasonable way in order for you to get your costs back. Um, the tribunal, if it does award costs, um, can now award up to £20,000. That's increased from £10,000 um, relatively recently. Um, <coughs> or you can ask a tribunal to refer your costs application to a county court, which can order an unlimited amount. Um, in my experience, and whenever I've, um, I've, got, I've got costs against claimant, we've always just asked for the amount the tribunal can award, which historically has, has been only £10,000. It's only just recently increased. Um, for two reasons. One, if it goes to the county court, there then needs to be another hearing to assess the actual amount of the costs. Um, and secondly, um, you, you can risk looking a little bit vindictive trying to squeeze every last penny out of the out of the claimant, and it can actually play a little bit better to the tribunal saying, look, we just want some contribution to our costs back, and when we're not trying to get every last penny out of him, we just want some of our costs back. The tribunal doesn't have to take account of the 
um, the claimant's means, um, but but can do so and typically does do so in my experience. It, it is difficult to get costs back in, in, in the tribunal, but it's n- by no means impossible. I've been successful on a number of occasions. I think the, the official statistic is you get costs back in 0.1% of cases, but my own experience is, 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 is higher than that, I'm pleased to say. Um, apparently 92% of cost awards are in favour of respondents. And if you are successful, it sends a very powerful message to your workforce that you know, actually there is a risk in bringing spurious claims against this. The case law says that costs, at, costs at, uh, awards are the exception rather than the rule. But if you can show you have tried to, to act reasonably and you've tried to resolve the matter and you've given the claimant every opportunity to get out of the case and you've warned them this is coming, um, then you can, you can be successful in a cost application. Just before we break for coffee, I just want to talk briefly about some changes that have happened or are in the pipeline. Since April of, of this year, judges have been hearing unfair dismissal cases alone without the two wing members. We now have the normal, the default rule that witness statements are taken as read, which means that the tribunal will go off and read them themselves um, rather than having the witness read them out um, in front of the tribunal. That reinforces the importance of getting your, your witness statement right and of making sure your witness is comfortable with what they're going to be cross-examined on. Because one advantage of having a witness read out their witness statements is it gives them an opportunity to, to settle down before the tribunal, before they're cross-examined. That's not going to happen in most cases anymore so it just reinforces the need for witnesses to be comfortable with what they're saying in their witness statements. David's already talked about this mandatory uh, pre-conciliation, uh, pre-claim conciliation period being introduced. There is a proposal to introduce the streamlined process for certain claims so they're dealt with just on paper. There's talk about reducing the unfair dismissal compensation cap to somewhere between one times or three times median earnings which would uh, today's prices would translate to something between around 25 and 75,000 pounds um, to put that in context the current cap on unfair dismissal claims for someone that's got the maximum amount of service to get a full basic award is around 85,000 pounds so may not be a huge difference and the government has stated that it is going to introduce fees for bringing tribunal claims from next year um, with two levels of fees um, level 1 claims are going to be for very simple claims. Most claims are going to fall within level 2, so unfair dismissal will be within level 2, discrimination will be within level 2. With one fee when you issue the claim, or the claim to issue the claim, one fee when you get to the hearing. Uh, but, and it is a, a, a big but, um, there is going to be um, a carve out for individuals who are on a low income or who are on benefits, which is probably going to be the case for a lot of people who've just lost, just, just lost their job. Um, so will any of this tip the balance? Uh, my, my feeling is a, a tiny bit, a little bit, um, but not a huge amount. So, with, for example, with fees, as I say, they're probably not going to apply to, to a lot of employees, a lot of former employees. Judges hearing unfair dismissal cases alone should speed up things a little bit. Judges might be a little bit more robust than the women members, not going to make a huge difference. Um, the mandatory pre-claim conciliation may help. Um, my experience is a lot of people, are particularly claimants, are not that focused on settlement at that stage of the process, and it's only when you have the actual fear of, a, of giving evidence in tribunal that they think a little bit more seriously um, about settlement. So these things might make a little bit of difference, but I don't think they're going to cause a radical shift in, in how many claims we get or how those claims are dealt with. We're going to break for coffee now, um, for sort of 15 minutes or so, and then we'll come back and, and look at a case study after that.